Hey everybody, it's Greg Martin here. Strap on in and put on your big boy pants. It's time to listen to Pop Goes Your World with Derek Myers and Chris McBrien. If you haven't already, subscribe on iTunes. And while you're there, please leave us a rating and review. And now it's time for our feature presentation. I'm Chris McBrien, and the pop culture from Generation X is everything to me. And I'm Derek Myers, and I'm here to educate Chris on the great pop culture of today's generation. Episode 268, Stand-Up Comedy. Chris McBrien along with Derek Myers and this is Pop Goes Your World, the pop culture podcast for the generations. Now this week, we're going to take a look at stand-up comedy over the years, how sort of how it's evolved and, uh, you know, stand-up uh, films and specials and how they've sort of transitioned into the streamers and all that. But, but before we get to that, Derek, what pop culture have you been able to take in this past week, my friend? Hey, Chris. Uh, I've actually had a chance to take in uh, a fair number of things. Uh, I've noticed that when the weather's nice, I tend to ride my bike outside in the summer. But when the weather's crappy, it gets a little colder, it gets a little wetter, I ride my inside bike. Well, when I ride the inside bike, I always have something on the screen in front of me. So I get through a lot of stuff in the winter. Um, In any case, uh, I had a chance to watch a brand new movie that just dropped on Disney Plus this week. Mm -hmm. It's a movie called No One Will Save You. It's uh, billed as a horror movie, but it's a PG-13, so it's it's not that scary. Um, And it stars um, Caitlin Dever, who uh, was um, uh, we? I recently just talked about her. She was in um, a movie called Booksmart that I sort of said was like the the female version of Superbad, and she was the uh, the female lead, the young girl in Dope Sick with uh, Michael Keaton. That we well, talked I feel about. like you okay. mentioned that last week yeah. or the week before. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, because I just watched Booksmart with mm-hmm. her in it a couple of weeks ago. Anyway, she's the lead in this, and um, the the sort of the the gimmick or the the pitch for this movie is that. There's no dialogue. It's not a silent movie, but there's no dialogue. The movie's 90 minutes long, and she she has like one tiny little outburst in one part where she says a couple of words. It's like three or four words. But other than that, you've got this 90-minute movie that's this horror movie with no dialogue. And when you sort of know that's the gimmick and you start watching, you're like, okay, let's see where this goes. And it works. It was pretty good. It was very clever the way it came together. And uh, I really liked it. It's, uh, you know, it was, again, horror's not really my genre, but. Uh, oh, you don't no, like horrors. Yeah. No, and I mean, it wasn't that scary, but um, I mean, it's PG-13, right? So you can only get certain certain amount of violence and gore and stuff. But no, it was it was sort of a tame horror movie, but it was an interesting movie watching experience. So if you've got Disney Plus, I think it's on Hulu in the States. It's uh, it's about 90 minutes. I liked it. It was a good one. And then I had a chance to watch a couple of uh, uh, old older ones, uh, old by my standards, new by your standards. Uh, okay. Today I had a chance to watch the 2017 release, The Mummy, starring Tom Cruise. And you got to think, well, Tom Cruise, he knows how to make a movie. Yeah, this one, not so good. I had, I'd heard the reviews were eh, and I thought, well, you know, I was really struggling to find something good to watch, and, and I thought I'll give it a chance. What I didn't realize was this movie was supposed to be the kickoff of a new franchise. that So it was from um, uh, Universal, and they basically were branding it as 
dark universal and it was supposed to be the mummy and uh the wolfman and frankenstein like basically all the classic monsters and so they were setting it up this was supposed to be the first in a series and um yeah no there's a reason that there's only one it was not that good so if you haven't seen the mummy with tom cruise I would say don't waste your time. If you want to see a good mummy movie, go back and watch the one with Brendan Fraser. You'll be I was going to say, is this was this like a remake of Brendan Fraser's no, mummy? Movie nothing or? related whatsoever. No, it draws oh, from those classic movies from like the 40s and 50s, like the old black and white monster movies. Like that's that's the inspiration for it. But um, anyway, not great. Uh, now I had a chance. Uh, you know, I have a long list of things in my Amazon account that I have on my wish list that I just sort of price watch because from time to time things go on sale that you don't expect to go on sale, and you can save a lot of money. And so you I have do like a penny pinch. I do, and yeah. there's there's a whole bunch of Blu-rays that I'm like, well, I wouldn't mind owning this, but I'm not paying full price for it. And one of the things I've had on my wish list finally went on sale for half price, and it was. The complete Blu-ray collected editions of all six Alien movies. So Alien, <laughs> Aliens, Alien 3, Alien Resurrection, Prometheus, and Alien Covenant. You get all six, all on Blu-ray with all the special features, and it was going for 60 bucks, which I said, no, I'm not paying that. Went on for half price, $30. I bought it in a heartbeat, free shipping, showed up the next day. So uh, my wife and I decided to go back and start uh, re-watching all these movies on Blu-ray and beautiful Blu-ray on our big screen. And so we started with Prometheus. Even though it's not the first movie uh, that was made, it is the first movie chronologically because it sort of does that Star Wars thing where they they decided to go back and make some prequels to the movies that that actually were the first ones. So we went back and we watched Prometheus from 2012, directed by Ridley Scott, who directed the first Alien movie, uh, and it's sort of the the beginning of that Alien franchise. And it there was a lot to like about it. It looks fantastic, and it looks even better on this Blu-ray on the big flat screen. It was beautiful to watch. Um, it's got a great cast. Uh, you know, it's not a great movie. It's not a perfect movie by any stretch of the imagination. It has its flaws, but there was a lot to like. I hadn't seen it in a while, and uh, I thought it held up pretty well. So Prometheus got the two thumbs up. If you haven't seen it in a while, it's worth going back and taking another look. Chris, I assume you have not seen any of the Alien movies except for the two that we watched on this podcast? That's correct, yes. Yeah. That okay. would be a good assumption to make. Yeah, safe yeah. assumption. <laughs> All right. And then finally, I had a chance to watch a documentary. For 40 days and 40 nights, he watched documentaries. He likes to learn about the world. It's Derek's Documentaries. Derek's Documentaries. Please do tell. All right. So on CNN, they, they actually do some pretty good documentaries on CNN. And this one had aired a couple months ago, and I missed it. And then they repeated it a couple of weeks ago, and I managed to get it on my recorder. I watched it this week. It's basically the life story of Little Richard. It's called Little Richard, I Am Everything. Mm. And it was amazing. <laughs> Let me tell you, I like Little Richard's music, but I didn't really know anything about him. And uh, this was a full biography from birth to death. Honestly, I didn't realize he had died. He died in 2020. I don't know if it was related to COVID or not, but uh, it was fantastic. Oh, my God, it was so good. And uh, it was uh, you know, the whole history of how he got into music and the the, the challenges he faced. And then he, he found religion and and he, you know, obviously being a, uh, a gay performer at that point in time and, and the, the persecution that he faced, both as being a person of color and a gay person. Um, and then he had an about face when he found God and he denounced his homosexuality and, and the, the, the problems that that had for both him personally and the gay community. Um, but all along, the whole idea of just how influential his music was 
on absolutely everybody that came after him. The Beatles, the Rolling Stones, Elvis Presley, all these people that you say, oh, these are the, the founders of rock and roll. It's like, no, 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 no. Lil Richard was a founder of rock and roll. All those other people were influenced by Lil Richard. Don't kid yourself. This this documentary is fantastic. And uh, if you if you think you're a fan of Lil Richard and you don't know his story, you do yourself a favor. Go and watch this or, or dig into his past. Go on go on YouTube and watch stuff about him. Like he led a fascinating life. And man, oh man, that was that man talented. So it was two huge thumbs up. If you have a chance to watch it, if it comes back on CNN, the Lil Richard documentary it was amazing. Derek. You and I actually had the opportunity to get together this week. We did something. indeed to celebrate someone's birthday, which we yes. mentioned on the last show. Yes, because I'm now uh, Wilford Brimley and Cocoon old. As we <laughs> but anyway, so you and I and our wives, we all got together and we attended the world premiere of 299 Queen Street West, which is a documentary uh, directed by Sean Menard. And it basically chronicles the origins and history of Canada's 24-hour music station, Much Music. So the United States had MTV, but up here in Canada, we had Much Music. And I got to tell you, Much Music was another example of Canadians being better than our American counterparts when it comes to pop culture. So MTV was obviously trailblazing. You know, it it proved that a 24-hour all-music, you know, video channel could you know, not only survive, but it could, it could thrive, right? But but much music here in Canada it was a little bit different. The VJs, the, the on-air video jockeys, as they were called. In Canada, on much music, they were all raw. With like, they had little to no background in broadcasting or radio or television. Erica M was a famous VJ here in Canada. She was the receptionist in the office and they just threw her on the air. And like, she really struggled and like most of them did, right? But that was the key to it all, I felt. The VJs weren't the stars. The musicians and the music was the star. In in the States with MTV, the VJs were like, they were made out to be the stars. Because they had Carson Daly and Nina Blackwood and downtown Julie Brown and Polly Shore and people like that. But on Much Music in Canada, the VJs were almost like a, like a surrogate for the viewer. You know, like they interviewed the musicians and... And I think just because they were so raw, they were able to able to get the musicians to really open up and just be themselves. And um, and it didn't hurt that they were in, in Canada too, I think, because the musicians figured like, what the hell? No one's watching. <laughs> I'll just say whatever I want, you know? So so it's like I say, Derek, we got we got a chance to meet up. We had dinner before and then we hit the premiere and, and we weren't seated together. So when we got to the, the, the venue, we, we went our separate ways and I was with my wife in the, in the left parterre the parterre, Derek. Ooh, the parterre. Somebody had good seats. Yeah, it's a, it's a fancy term for the section along the side. <laughs> you know, under the box seats. I, actually, I was I believe, in the balcony, which is a fancy name for nosebleeds. <laughs> I think above us in the box seats were uh, Statler and Waldorf. Actually, I believe up there. <laughs> yeah. But uh, anyway, I know I don't know if they were up there, but I do know that who was beside us. So we get in and we sit down and we're, we're like, going to start watching this. And my wife is like, she's whispering to me. She's like, look, look beside you. Look beside you. Look, 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 look. And so I turn and I look. It's Corey Hart, the musician. Nice. nice. And he's sitting was there he wearing sunglasses. Uh, if funny enough, he was not. And it was at night. Well, how so, did you possibly recognize him? Exactly. A little shock. So, so you like, you know, he's he's there and he's he's got his son and his wife with him. So I like, I didn't say a word to him. You know, like uh, there's no way I was going to bug this guy. You know, 
But it was, it was just a great experience. I really had a good time. Uh, I'm it, really glad we attended the premiere. I, yeah. You love no, documentaries. I love much music. My wife loves Corey Hart. It was like a success all around. You know? Yeah. No, I, and I really liked it. Uh, personally, I, I thought that it, it was a little longer than it needed to be, but... Um, Given what it was, I, I'm totally willing to forgive that. And uh, for those people listening who may be interested in actually seeing it, they're doing a, a cross Canada tour to promote it. Uh, I think it's got 10 or 15 stops over the next couple of months. And then right around Christmas time, it's going to be available on uh, Crave here in Canada. So if you've got Crave, uh, you can just hold out a couple more months. It'll be on. And once it is, strongly recommend you take a look at it. It was really good. Yeah, it was. You know what else is good? This. <laughs> Here's your dad joke of the week. Uh, Derek, um, I thought, you know, we're doing stand-up comedy this week, so I should do a stand-up comedy dad joke. would only be appropriate. Of course. Okay, so Derek, why don't stand-up comics take steroids? Oh, geez. I have no idea. Because they need balls to get on stage. (laughs) (laughs) Jeez. Nice. Apparently taking steroids makes your ball shrink. I guess. Apparently. I was in the pool. I was in the pool. <laughs> Happy pandemic anniversary. Don't be ridiculous. Okay, well then, have I got a show for you? Oh yeah, because I watch that show so much. I can't wait for you. Oh, that's right up your alley. 30 bags of potato chips and 12 bottles of liquor. Okay, this looks uh, like something that would be up my alley. I'm doing crappy. How you doing? You're like, I'm doing crappy too. I want it to end. I want them all to go to jail. Uh, we need to lock you up for telling that joke. I think that would be best. All right, so we're going to talk about stand-up comedy. But before we do, and before we get into our top five list of our favorite stand-up comedy, like, films or specials, it's probably good to put things in context. You agree? Absolutely. Talk a little bit about stand-up comedy and the history of it. It's It's been around forever. Literally, if, if you believe Mel Brooks' History of the World Part 1, they had stand-up philosophers. Stand-up philosophers. Yeah, yeah. back in ancient Rome. But, uh, but stand-up comedy, like, as an art form, it's, it's like an American thing, really, because it... It probably started out, you know, in the early to mid 1800s in the U.S., like with minstrel shows and then with vaudeville and the Chitlin circuit and stand up comedians like Bob Hope and George Burns and Milton Berle all came from vaudeville. Right. And people like Moms Mabley came from the Chitlin circuit. The Chitlin circuit, if you don't know, is was a lot of the venues where African Americans performed because basically like the black vaudeville. Right. And that stayed strong right through the 80s. It gave Tyler Perry a vehicle for his work. I remember. But stand up comedy has had this huge part to play in pop culture, not just Gen X, but like right up until today. Right. Absolutely. Like it's 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 been a big part of American culture. So I think it's worth going back and just kind of putting things in a a frame of reference before we get to our top five. Um, and, and remember, this is going to be our, our top five sort of personal stand-up comedy videos or specials, or I don't know what you call them anyway. Yeah, well, we can get to that when we yeah. start going through the list. One person I want to talk about is Lenny Bruce. So the thing is, anything, we've mentioned this before, anything that's sort of significant in pop culture, it's not created in a vacuum. You know, everything's right. influenced by something that came before. And a lot of the stand-up comics that sort of ruled in Gen X, like if you think about guys like George Carlin and, and, and Richard Pryor and guys like that, they all owed their success to Lenny Bruce. Like, so if you're not familiar with Lenny Bruce, he was a stand-up comedian back in like late 50s, early 60s. And he basically ushered in all that 
counterculture, you know, comedy that came in. This guy broke all the rules. Like, so, so back then, they actually had obscenity laws. Like, you could not swear on the stage. And not only could you not swear, you couldn't talk about politics or religion or sex. So Lenny Bruce comes along and he basically broke every law every time he got on stage. <laughs> like, so in 1964, he was arrested and he was tried and convicted for breaking obscenity laws. And uh, his trial became like this, almost like a lightning rod, you know, for the debate around freedom of speech in the United States. And he died of a drug overdose in 66. They made a biopic about him in 74, I think it was, it was called Lenny with Dustin Hoffman. Yeah, as you say, Dustin Hoffman. Yeah, Yeah, I'm familiar with it. I've not seen it. Yeah, he was nominated for an Oscar for that. So if it wasn't for Lenny Bruce, a lot of the comedians that followed never would have been able to do what they did. You know, I mean, it didn't take all that many years after Lenny Bruce's trial, um, you know, before swearing and talking about sex and religion and politics. It was basically became mainstream. But he was the trailblazer. So he paved the way. So I think he deserves a lot of recognition for that. So he was one guy I wanted not to mention. Chris, I'm just looking it up here. Uh, yep. The the movie Lenny is available for free on the Tubi network for anyone who hasn't seen it that mm. might be interested in checking it out. So like you, I'm a, I'm a big fan of stand-up comedy. Uh, I, I, I go out to see professional stand-up comics probably once a year, twice a year. Uh, when we travel, like I go to Vegas a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we we usually try and, uh, not every time, but a, a number of times we've gone to see some professional stand-ups. Uh, again, you get somewhere like Vegas. These are people that are usually big names, well-known, have established material. Uh, in some cases, they're like older performers that there's that nostalgia factor. Um, but even in, in most places, you have... Um, like uh, an am- like a place where amateurs or, or up and coming comics can go. I mean, here in Toronto, we have Second City and we have like Yuck Yucks and Just for Laughs. There's all these different places. And I'm sure that there are, if not those brands, the equivalent thereof in most big cities. And I mean, it's hit or miss, right? Um, you sort of get a, you, you, it's like any other art form. You're not gonna love it all. It's like music, for example. You're not gonna love all genres of music, but you can certainly appreciate the ones that you're not wild about. Like I'm not a huge fan of country music, but I grew up listening to it because that's what my parents like. So like I can appreciate it even if that's not my first choice of a musical uh, option. And I find it's the same with stand-up comics. The different comics tend to do different shticks and they go in different directions. Some tell jokes, some tell stories, some share experiences from their life. And you know, you, you get a sense of uh, which ones you're you're most likely to uh, enjoy, but uh, it's always it's always a good time. I find I can't recall the last time I went to a comedy show where I didn't have a good time. Even if some of the comedians were terrible, uh, you usually still have a pretty good time. It's an it's a fun outing, and uh, it's it's not easy. Uh, not that I can speak from personal experience, but uh, I, I've seen a lot of documentaries over the year. You know me, I love documentaries, and and there's been a lot of documentaries recently, like in the last five or ten years, about the history of comedy, the history of stand up, the history of sitcoms. And uh, actually, I think it was, if I remember correctly, I think CNN did uh, a couple of series on the history of comedy. So a lot of what you were talking about rang true for me because I remember seeing them recently. But I've known people that are performers like you that have, um, you know, done some stage, done some theater, done some performing. I, I even know some folks that have tried stand up com- like stand up comedy. And everyone I know that's tried it has said it is the most difficult thing that they've ever attempted. And, you know, my hat's off to you for for anyone who has been uh, brave enough 
to uh, to go in front of an audience and try it. Uh, it's something that I've never wanted to do myself because I can only imagine how horrible it would be if you crash and burn. But um, that's that's I guess part of the appeal for uh, for people who are trying to get into it. Right? There's got to be a, an amazing rush to to doing it successfully. But uh, the thing that I'm constantly here when I when I read up on it or I watch videos on it is it's it's all about persistence. You got to just keep trying it over and over and over and over. Even people like someone like Jerry Seinfeld, who was probably, you know, one of the most successful stand-up comedians in the last 30 or 40 years, managed to parlay it into one of the most successful uh, TV shows, uh, sitcoms of the last 30 years. You know, I, I can remember seeing things with him where he was just like, you go out night after night after night after night, you just keep refining the material. And uh, like you said, it's it is it's an American art form and, and it's a lot harder than I think people realize. Well, yeah, because I've done a lot of improv in, in my life and I love improv because I can react to other actors and play off them and like you know kind of build things but stand up you are on your own and I've done stand up yeah. before and it is hard and you also have to be really good at reading the room like you have to be able to read the whole room you need to have like you know a hundred jokes and you go out on stage planning to do like 50 of them and reading the room and figure out which ones work which ones don't and just pivoting on the spot it's, it's really hard. One thing I wanted to mention is female stand-up comedians. Because like a lot of things in the 19th and 20th century, stand-up comedy was like male-dominated. Yeah. Right? The boys and club, for yeah, sure. With the idea that a woman would get on stage and tell jokes. Like, I mean, come on, right? It was like not even something people think, think would even happen. And the Friars Club in New York, which was this huge comedy club, right? And they, that's where they had all those roasts and all that stuff. The yep. Friars Club didn't even allow female members until 1987. Like, wow. <laughs> Liza Minnelli was the first female allowed to join the club, you know? Jeez. And, and at, at, when they had the roast of Sid Caesar back in 1983, Phyllis Diller had to sneak in disguised as a man just to get in there. Wow. But a lot of female comedians really started to emerge. On the mm -hmm. comedy scene, like like Phyllis Diller, like I mentioned, Joan Rivers is another one. Those two really sort of broke through with mainstream audiences. But that was back in the 50s and 60s. Like in the 70s, Elaine Boozler, man, she would go out and slog it like night after night after night and go across the country and do it when, when no other women were doing it. And uh, then you had like Roseanne Barr and Ellen DeGeneres, you know. That they really kind of broke through, but still, it was like a lot. It was a lot of men. It was it was a hard slog for women. You know, you got to give a, give credit where it's due. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the things that uh, that I remember the um, the performer Jamie Fox tells this story a lot when he was first starting out as because he started as a stand up comedian before he went into TV and movies and became an Oscar winner and all the rest of it. Um, when he was doing stand up, he said that. Um, the places where he would go, they were always on amateur night. They'd always put the women up before the men. And so whenever he was there and they were always making up stage names for themselves, he would always use a name, a first name that could be a man or a woman's name because that would be give him a stronger likelihood of getting up before the other comedians. So that that's part of the reason his stage name is Jamie Foxx because Jamie can be both a male or, or traditionally is a male or female name. And I, I, I've seen interviews with him where he rhymes off like 20 or 30 pseudonyms that he tried and all of them are like – names that would work either way and you know it's it's uh it's definitely a reflection of the of the the era like this would have been the late 80s early 90s he's talking about when he was sort mm -hmm. of breaking into it and uh yeah like the fact that there were not a lot of women 
performers and that they they clearly were having a hard time finding an audience and they weren't being given the same opportunities as the men. And so, you know, they had to put the women on before the men kind of thing. So we've been doing this for eight seasons, this podcast, and we have not really touched on stand up comedy until now. So so we thought it would be worthwhile to put together a top five list of our favorite stand up. I guess you call them films or specials or whatever. Special, you want I'm going to call them. Yeah. yeah specials. Some of them, some of them are full on. Like, and films. I think uh, we, we haven't compared lists, but we sort of, yeah. with this one, I basically said, I'm going to take more of the newer angle and you're going to take more of the older angle, which I don't think will come to a surprise as anyone who's heard this show more than once before. <laughs> That's kind of I what suspect, we do. <laughs> I suspect some or all of the ones on your lists are possibly things that were, that even had theatrical releases. If they're yeah. older, everything on my do, list. Yeah. Everything on my list is from streaming because every mm. the oldest one on my list is 2000 and most of mine are from the last 10 years. But well, there'll um, be no crossover. No worries. No, I, I don't <laughs> think there will. So but before we actually jump into mm. doing our list, a couple of things I wanted to just mention that sure. we've talked about before. or I mean, I've mentioned it before. Humor is humor is difficult, as we've been saying. But I find that. um Humor changes like what people find funny will change with the times because it's in part um, your relationship to the material. And you and I were just talking about this off air where we were talking about South Park. And I said, like, some of those first seasons of South Park, which at the time were so edgy and controversial. And you think this this was great. This is, you know, the first season of South Park. That's how they became who they are. And you go back and you watch it now. And like some of the humor that's in there is kind of cringy now because what was considered edgy or your racy back then is now just considered straight up inappropriate. And, and I think that, uh, and we talk about this when we review old movies all the time, but I think with things like stand up comedy, that's, you really start to get into that where stuff that was deemed exceptionally funny and, uh, in the moment, uh, does not always hold up that well. And, um, I think that that's, you know, obviously, you know, culture changes, uh, uh, times change, and you sort of need to um, you need to be mindful of that as you're as you're sort of going through it. And I think one of the things that we're we'll probably discuss is de- definitely as we go through my picks is as the world we've lived in, at least in the last 10 to 15 years, has started to become more self-aware and has started to recognize um disenfranchised groups that are often the punchline of jokes or traditionally have been the punchline of jokes. Um, you, you start to see some of the older comedy just, just doesn't stand up. It's inappropriate. You don't make certain kinds of jokes anymore. You don't use certain groups as a punchline. You know, we always talk about revenge of the nerds. Well, the joke is that the guy's Chinese, ha ha ha. Let's laugh at him. Like that's not going to fly today in part because I don't think your today audience is going to find that funny. And it, it, it can become I got to think it's going to be exceptionally difficult in today's day and age for today's comics to find a way to push the envelope and be funny uh, without offending someone. And I think that that's a real risk and a real challenge. And and a couple of people on my list, I'm going to go into more detail on that about. Um, so anyway, before I dive in, I just want to mention uh, two comedians that are not going to be on my list okay. that I want to just give a quick shout out to as a sort of a recognition because they are both very popular. I just personally don't care for them that much. And I'll and I'll tell you sort of the pros and cons. So the first one I want to mention is um, Jim Gaffigan. 
He's been he's uh, an American comedian. His material is very family friendly. He's got I want to say like five or six children, and like he's been he's been doing his stand up for like twenty years now, and all of his material relates to his real life experience and being a dad and having these kids and all the rest of that. And for me, I don't have kids and I don't go to church and like you know his lifestyle and my lifestyle in the sense of like you know he's a, he's a dad and he's he's got all these kids and stuff. I just find with his material, I have a hard time relating to it. I don't find it funny because I've never experienced the kinds of things he's talking about. And so much of of what humor is, is is finding a, a common thread with your audience and then maybe giving them an unexpected turn. And that's where the punchline often comes in, something that's unexpected. And, and then everybody laughs or they sort of go, "Ooh, yeah, I shouldn't have done that. But Jim Gaffigan's made a very good career for himself, being a very clean stand up comic. And a lot of people love him, and he he puts out new material pretty frequently, like probably every year or so. And if you punch him in on Netflix or Amazon, you're gonna find a dozen specials. I've watched a few. I like there's always a few things in there that I can find funny, but I find for me personally, for the most part, I just have a hard time relating to his material because it doesn't speak to me. But uh, had to I think acknowledge him as a a very popular, very successful working comic in today's uh, era. The other one I want to mention is Ali Wong. You were talking about female comedians okay. again. I mean take what you will this says about me but honestly i generally don't find female comedians funny and i think again it's because i have a hard time relating to the material i think female comics have realized that the way that they can succeed where male comics can't is is talking about the female experience and so again uh, my wife will watch a, a stand-up a female stand-up comedian and laugh herself silly and I'll say to her, well, I heard you laughing a couple hours ago in the other room. What were you watching? And she'll tell me and I'll go watch the same thing and watch for a full hour and not laugh one bit because it doesn't speak to me. Ali Wong is one that that I do find pretty funny. Um, you know, uh, again, I wouldn't put her in my top five, but the women that I spoke with this week when we were talking about stand up comics as our uh, as our topic, they said, you have to mention Ali Wong. So I'm going to give her a shout out again. She's got a couple of specials that are readily available online. So if uh, if you're looking for a very funny female stand-up comedian and you are not familiar with Ali Wong's material, check it out. You'll be pleasantly surprised. Nice. Okay, so let's dive into like our list of like specials or films or whatever we want to call them. Start with your number five and we'll work our way up. What do you got? So um, my number five is possibly one of my more controversial, I mean, I'm going to have a few sort of controversial ones. So I I'm going to go with a staple here. I'm going to go with one of the giants in the industry for the last 20 years. I'm going with Dave Chappelle. Mm. Love him or hate him. Whether you love them and now you hate them, whether you didn't like them before, you love them now. He's been polarizing. He's edgy. He speaks his mind. Uh, he comes across as incredibly intelligent and well-spoken, in my opinion. I've uh, always found his his material funny because I find that, you know, I've said it before, you know, the real money is dick and fart jokes. Dave Chappelle doesn't do dick and fart jokes. Dave Chappelle finds a way to almost provide more highbrow comedy, but he does it at a very sort of lowbrow level where it can really appeal to a broad audience. Obviously, he he, he made his bones as an African-American speaking to the black audience, and, and that was his in. That was how he started. And he continues to share, you know, his life experience as a black man in America, but he talks about politics. He talks about current events. He talks about uh, you know, societal issues and problems. Uh, he does a lot of stuff, obviously, about race, being a black man and being married to an Asian woman. Um, he lives in, he lives in um, Ohio, which is, uh, you know, 
primarily, uh, you know, a, a white state. It's a red state. It's, uh, you know, so it his his brand of politics may not necessarily jive with his neighbors, and, and he's used that in his material. But he has been tremendously successful. He has made a tremendous amount of money over his career. Uh, just looking on his uh, Wikipedia here, it talks about he has won six Emmy Awards and four Grammys, as well as the Mark Twain Prize for American Humor, which is presented by the Kennedy Center as America's highest comedy honor. So, you know, when you're talking about the Hall of Fame of stand-up comedians, Dave Chappelle's in there along with, you know, so many that came before him. I know in the more recent years, he's been, um, uh, he, he's, had some routines and he's done some bits where he's he's made comments about the LGD, LGTB community, which have not sat well with a lot of people. And so I think people who maybe have been fans of his for a long time are sort of reconsidering him. I watched I watched the specials uh, that, that sort of generated all the controversy. I can understand. Well, I think I can understand why, um, you know, some people were having some problems, but uh, you know, I, I've seen some of the material he's put out after that, and and I would still consider myself a fan of his work. I definitely like his older work, probably a little better than his brand new stuff. But uh, as far as my actual entry as my number five is, I got to go with his very first special on HBO. It's from 2000. It's called Killing Them Softly. Um, it's still available online, and uh, you know, go to the beginning. That's before he had Chappelle's show. That's before he had all these Netflix specials. That's before. Uh, you know, he was hosting Saturday Night Live. Like this is this was his coming out party, and uh, he's never been better than he was in 2000. So my number five, Dave Chappelle. I know him from Chappelle's show, and some of that stuff was really funny. Yeah, oh yeah, he, he was good. <clears throat> okay, my number five, Dana Carvey, Critics' Choice. So I think it's easy to forget how talented Dana Carvey was. If all you know about him was that he was like Garth Alger or the church lady. Head on over to YouTube and just look up Dana Carvey Critics' Choice. It's available there for free. So in 1995, he was obviously coming off this hugely successful run as a cast member on Saturday Night Live because he was in the cast from 86 to 93. And then he got his own stand-up special on HBO, which was Critics' Choice. So he, he comes out on stage, he opens it up, and, he, and he's like working the audience for applause. He gets them like super loud and quiet and then loud and quiet. And then he just kind of gets into his stand-up act and he just does all these impressions. Like he was so good at impressions, especially politicians. He does like George W. Bush and Ross Perot. And he does this whole routine about the O.J. Simpson trial, which again, very dated, but Back then, it was so funny. But the thing I liked about it is he basically does an impression of every lawyer and everybody around the trial. And he does them all, like, so well. And then he, he does other stuff. Around that time, Hugh Grant got pulled over for being with a prostitute by police. And Dana Carvey does this impression of what would it be like if Cary Grant, back in the day, got pulled over when he was with Catherine Hepburn. And he just impersonates them, and it's just so funny. And then he's talking about what it's like having young kids, which is a really funny bit, I thought. And at one point, then he picks up a guitar, and then he gets on the keyboard, and he plays that Chopping Broccoli song and everything. I think there's a little bit of everything, you know, a little bit of something for everybody in that. And I think uh, he was really a massively talented guy. And so I really like the stand-up uh, in Critics' Choice, so that's my number five. So 
over to you, number four. What do you got? Nice. Are you familiar with that one? I'm not. I, I've uh, honestly, I I was never really a big fan of Dana Carvey on Saturday Night Live, and possibly just because he was overshadowed by so many other great performers. Um, honestly, the the comedians that do impressions, I, I've never found that entertaining or funny. Uh, I can appreciate the work that it takes to do it well, but for me, it's just never been an, been a thing. And that that was his whole shtick: is look at how great he is at all these impressions. Okay, well that that's just not my my brand of humor. But anyway, I'll I'll take a look at it. Sure, yeah, why not? It's good. All right, uh, for me, number four, uh, I'm moving uh, to something a lot more recent. Uh, uh, well, a comedian who's still working. Uh, I'm going with Anthony Jeselnik, and I'm going to talk about his uh, 2019 Netflix special called Anthony Jeselnik Fire in the Maternity Ward. Okay. So. Uh, for those of you who may not know him by name, I'll just read you a little blurb here about uh, his 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 deal. It says uh, he is known for his dark comedy style, which emphasizes ironic misdirection, non sequiturs, biting insults, an arrogant demeanor, and a stage persona that frequently takes amoral or socio- sociopathic stances. He is basically, by definition, the most uh, insulting comedian you can have he he offends everybody equally deliberately to basically get a reaction that's his thing and he's been doing it for 15 years he had his he had his own tv show for a season that eventually got canceled because it was too edgy and there were some some issues and he's one of these performers that basically is uh deliberately pushes the envelope because he can and um you know, it's so over the top that no one in their right mind would believe the things he's saying are are real. Like you, you, I, I can see how on its face you might think, oh, well, you know, that guy's a complete jerk. He's a misogynist. He's a racist. He's a whatever. Um, but the more I watch this comedian, the more I watch the stand up, the more I, I, I believe and maybe I'm incorrect with this, that it's clearly an act. It's clearly a, a stage persona that. You know, he's had to try and separate himself from a a large field of other people trying to do the same thing. And, oh, my God, it's both over the top and filthy and hilarious. At least I find it that way. Um, And I found that a couple of the guys on my list are like this. It's the, you know, the dirtier they are, the more inappropriate they are, the the more they can take what you think is funny and make it inappropriate and then bring it back around to make it funny again is is a real talent and uh so anthony jeselnik's got a couple on uh, netflix right now um the his most recent one uh, i believe is this one from 2019 it's called fire in the maternity ward so check cool. it out all right so my number four so derek when we were talking about the history of stand-up comedy i was talking about the friars club right and they used to do these celebrity roasts back then like from like 74 to 84 mm-hmm. Like Rich Little and Foster Brooks and Buddy Hackett, you know, would be there. And, and and one of the funniest human beings of all time, in my opinion, Don Rickles. Would play those. Oh, my nice. God. That guy was so funny. Oh, my God. He was funny. But then in the late 90s, early 2000s, Comedy Central brought back these roasts. I'm sure you remember the format. They'd pick like a celebrity roast and then like he or she would sit in a chair and then all these other people would like do stand up routines where they like just ripped on the person. Just it was so good. So lots of celebrities got roasted, but the best one ever was in 2006. It was the Comedy Central roast of William Shatner. And that's my number four. Nice. So, so like I say, 
by the time they got around to him, these new roasts had a few people that were like regular roasters. Okay, there was Jeff Ross and Greg Giraldo and Lisa Lampanelli. And then they were surrounded by other celebrities like George Takei, you know, oh my, we like him. Yep. Oh my. And Jason Alexander and Fred Willard. But <laughs> did they ever rip into Shatner? It's so funny. So some of my favorite quotes from this. And the thing is, they don't just rip into Shatner. They rip into each other too. So so Betty White's there and then Lisa Lampanelli gets up there and she says, Betty White is so old that the prize on her first ever game show was fire. <laughs> that was good. And then Betty White gets up and she's like, she says, I caught the bouquet at William Shatner's wedding. I just hope I'm around to catch the at Sulu's. <laughs> and I'm like, oh my God. And then Takei gets up there and he's like, <laughs> he goes, Betty White, Lisa Lampanelli, Farrah Fawcett. It smells like in here. I think... Oh my. <laughs> so they just rip on each other. In it. So it, it just made me laugh so much that these people would just rip on each other so much. So I don't know. This, this one might be number one. Like, I just can't get over how mean everyone was and so dirty. But I, I think it's more shocking than anything, I guess. And so that's what made it so funny. But it's it's my number four. So what do you got for number three? All right. Uh, I'm, I'm doing an audible here. I'm crossing off my original number three and I'm putting something else in because oh, as we've that? been talking, it mm -hmm. sort of reminded me of something that I felt uh, this, this show would be, uh, uh, you know, lacking something significant if it didn't have it in here. And, and so I want to throw it in. So I'm going to throw it in at number three and it's the 2005 film, the aristocrats. Oh yes. Great one. Great. One. All right. So oh, um, for those who maybe are not familiar with this, I'm just going to read you the little blurb here uh, that I just pulled up online. So it says, um, uh, the, the 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 movie is basically over a hundred different comedians telling the same joke. And so this is what it says here. The joke involves a person pitching an act to a talent agent. Typically, the first line is a man walks into a talent agent's office. The man then describes the act from this point up to but not including the punchline. The teller of the joke is expected to ad lib the most shocking act they can possibly imagine. This will often include elements such as incest, group sex, graphic violence, defecation, coprophilia, necrophilia, bestiality, rape, child sexual abuse, and various other taboo behaviors. The agent then asks, what do you call your act? Followed by the punchline, the aristocrats. And so this documentary, it's, it's basically a documentary if you want to yeah. think of it that way, where they give you the history of how this how this joke came about in vaudeville like it goes way back and it's it's almost like a secret handshake between comedians where when comedians get together this is sort of their the measuring stick where they say well what's your version of the aristocrats well what's your version they of the don't perform it on stage it's just a very backstage rarely, thing for each exactly. other exactly yeah. it's a very sort of inside baseball kind of thing and so this movie um this documentary has all of these famous comedians and people, some of them very traditionally clean comedians that don't usually say swears or anything like that, have some of the filthiest version of this joke you've oh, ever yeah. heard. And it's the history of the joke. And uh, for me, uh, being a fan of stand up, I had no idea what any of this was until the movie came out. A friend of mine saw it and said, you're going to love this. And and I did. And I honestly I haven't seen it in a long time. I may have to go back and see where I can uh, find a copy of it. But um 
I do remember one of the things that like the movie when it came out was quite controversial at the time. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that one of the specific examples I remember that they were talking about in it was um, when 9-11 happened, uh, there was supposed to be, uh, correct me if I'm wrong here, I want to say it was like a stand up benefit somewhere and Gilbert Gottfried was one of the the performers. And obviously this is the day after all of this tragedy happened and all of these deaths and you know the world in america are like in this this grief-stricken horror of oh my god what's happening in the world around us and here you've got a comedian who's going to try and be funny and like you said reads the room and realizes there is nothing i can say that is going to make these people laugh no he There's made an, he made an airline joke and oh, was that what the, it was yeah the audience turned on him immediately yeah and, and they so, were like heckling him and booing him and so he was like what am I going to do? I'm out on stage. So he immediately went into the aristocrats joke. Yeah. And the other comedians on the stage were dying laughing because they're like, oh my God, he's, it's like he's letting the cat out of the bag. Yeah. And so he yeah. did this joke and people were like, what the hell were they all laughing at? What was that all about? And yeah. that's what led to the documentary. Because they were like, go. what was that joke all about? And it, the cat was let out of the bag that this was an inside joke with comedians. And that's yeah. kind of how it went down. I remember that. Yeah. So if you if you haven't seen the aristocrats uh, and you're a fan of stand up comedians, uh, it is fantastic. So I'm just looking at the list now on uh, on the Wikipedia entry. There's got to be 200 comedians listed here uh, that, that give their version or some version of the joke. And um, no, it's it's literally a who's who of stand up comedy uh, as of 2005 when this came out. So, yeah, no, I, I realized as we started this conversation that I was like, oh, my God, how do we possibly yeah. overlook this? Because I didn't know if it was going to be on your list since it was after 2000. So I thought I need to make an audible and throw it in there. So I'm putting it in as my number three. Love it. Great, great pick. OK, so my number three, I'm actually I actually have a tie. Sorry. So I'm I'm going to combine Carlin on campus and Carlin at Carnegie. Okay, so Good back place. in the 80s, and, uh, HBO released a bunch of comedy specials and George Carlin did a whole bunch of them there and they were released on VHS and I had copies of both of these, Carlin on Campus and Carlin at Carnegie. So I couldn't be- pick between them. So, so there, and there was, there was no way George Carlin wasn't going to be on my list. So I decided no. to put them together. So they're both stand-up comedy shows. And just basically George Carlin on stage doing what he did best, which is making observations about the world, right? Mm -hmm. I always felt George Carlin was different. Like, I mean, like he swore a lot. I mean, I mean, hell, his famous routine was the seven dirty words you can't say on television, right? It's so good. (laughs) It holds up so well. It's like how old it is. But like Lenny Bruce that I was talking about before, George Carlin would talk about religion and politics all the time. And like he wasn't just there to pick on people or make jokes. He really personified the idea of punching up. Yes. You know what I mean? Like he was all about trying to take down those that were in power, those with authority, you know, uh, maybe take down isn't the right way. Like he was, it was only trying to call them out, you know, like question their power, yeah. question their authority. And his political and religious observance observations, they were some of the best scene so in one he's talking about uh conservatives and how they're against abortion and then he's like but once a child is born these conservatives are like screw you you're on your own and then he makes this observation about religion he's like religion is basically convincing people that there's an invisible man in the sky who watches over everything you do 
and has a list of 10 things you can't do. And if you do any of them, you're going to go to this special place filled with fire and burning and suffering and pain. But he loves you. He loves you and he needs money. Yeah, <laughs> It was just such a good routine. So those two George Carlin specials, the thing about them was they were really influential on me. I was a teenager, you know, as a young person trying to find my way in the world. And I came across these. I went to Catholic high or Catholic school as a kid. I went to Catholic high school as well. I was like always told what to do, how to act, what was expected of me. And then here I'm watching George Carlin telling me it's okay to question this stuff. You know, like I say, it was all very influential and really, really funny. So George Carlin was one of the greatest stand-up comics of all time. Top three, I'd say for sure. So I put them together on my list. Yeah, that's fair. And uh, again, uh, I think we're going to find a lot of the comedians, especially the ones on your list, because your list is probably going to have a lot more of the older comedians. Mm -hmm. um, there have been a lot of documentaries made about a lot of these people who were so influential. And George Carlin's another one. There was like, I think, a two or three part documentary that came out in the last few years about his life. Uh, again, I knew a fair amount of bit about him, but not nearly as much as I thought I did. I definitely had no understanding of sort of his roots and that he he really got to a point in his career and then made a, a complete change and decided, no, I'm going to do a different kind of performing now uh, and tell different kinds of jokes. And uh, so that that was eye opening to me, just like you said. It's like, oh, you could do that. OK, great. Um, I loved how he also would call out guys like um, Andrew Dice Clay. Mm -hmm. He called him out because he's like, Andrew Dice Clay punches down. Yes. You know, he goes after people that are marginalized and people that don't have a voice. And that's who Dice Clay goes after. And he's like, you know, he's wrong. You got to go after the people that have power. Like they're yeah. the ones you got to pull down. George Carlin was phenomenal. Man, he was good. Okay. So what do you got for Great. number two? All right. Uh, that's a hard act to follow no matter who was on my list. Maybe I should have oh. saved the aristocrats for number two. Yeah. That seems like it was uh, a more great. more of a better segue here. So, um, again, I've got two current, like newer, current working mm -hmm. comedians in my one and two. And these are just two of my personal favorites coming into the last two picks. So, mm -hmm. again, Carlin, I tremendously hard act to follow. Don't don't judge me on this one. But my number two is uh, an American comedian, Nate Bargetsy. Uh, he's, uh, he's often known as the Tennessee kid. And that's the one that I want to talk about. It came out in 2019. His Netflix special is called the Tennessee kid. Okay. And, um, he's got a couple more that have come out since then. And, um, he's one of the things that I like about him and he's at, is he's actually a clean comic. He doesn't swear, uh, his, his jokes, uh, again, most, com most comedians today don't tell jokes so much as they have humorous observations. So the kind of humorous observations and stories he tells are more about like his personal, his family life and things about his growing up, his experiences growing up. And one of the things that I just found so funny about his story is that his dad was a professional magician. And so a lot of his stories growing up are around his dad being a professional magician and the craziness that was surrounding his childhood growing up that he just thought was, this is how things are. And um, it sort of gave him a, a uh, unique perspective on the world when he realized like, oh no, my, my dad as a stage magician uh, is providing me with this sort of bizarre look on the world. Um, and now uh, as he's getting a little older, he's starting a family. So a lot of his material starts coming back to his family life, which again, I don't have kids. So some of that stuff I can't completely relate to, but he does have a whole thing in his act where he talks about his aging parents, which I could definitely relate to. And some of that stuff has been pretty funny, but he's got this really great bit 
about um, uh, going into a Starbucks and ordering a coffee with cream and getting a coffee with whipped cream and just like trying to explain to the barista that I said coffee with cream and she kept saying coffee whipped cream. And he's like, really, honestly, when was the last time someone walked into a Starbucks and asked for a coffee with whipped cream on it? And it just goes on and on about this, this misunderstanding. And that's sort of like one of his really big bits that comes up. He sort of references it in his follow-up specials. And he's got another bit where he talks about going to like an alligator museum, but it's like in someone's house. It's like these rednecks that have this alligator museum. And he's like, oh, my God, please tell me these people are still alive. And he and so every time he does a new stand up, he sort of references back to let me tell you what's going on with this alligator museum and, and the tragedies that have occurred there and just the the outrageous hilariousness that that ensues. But um, no, I find him really good. He's got a, a recent special that just dropped on Amazon, I think, within the last year. And he's got a he's got a, a whole bit in his new one about a bet he made with his friends when they were golfing and I'm not a golfer, but I'm a better and most of my friends golf and oh my God, it was so funny. I remember watching this when I was in the airport the last time I went on vacation and I'm sitting in the airport waiting room waiting for my airplane and I'm crying, I'm laughing so much and my family's mm-hmm. looking at me, they're going, what are you watching that's so sad? And I'm like, it's not sad, it's hilarious. It was just, I, I was beside myself, it was so funny. So Nate Bargetze, he's, he's a working comedian, he's still doing new material, he's got two or three specials out He's my number two. All right, so strap yourself in for this one. My number two is Richard Pryor live on the Sunset Strip. Richard Pryor was something else. (laughs) He was more of a force of nature than he was a person. So if we go back to 1974, Mel Brooks wanted him to play Sheriff Bart in Blazing Saddles. But he just, he was too unreliable. And the studio wouldn't even insure him to be in that movie. But then he went on and he had this amazing stand-up career where he he was basically the edgiest stand-up, you know, since Lenny Bruce. And then Lorne Michaels got him to be the host of the seventh episode of Saturday Night Live's first season back in 75. They actually had to put a seven-second delay on the show because they were scared, right, that he would say something, he would, you know, swear. And in that, oh, my God, that episode was so good. He did this exorcist sketch and he did this word association sketch with Chevy Chase where he threw the N-word out there. And he he threw the N-word into like American living rooms. You know, yeah. it was all about for him using that word as a weapon back at white people. You know, man, he was amazing. So, and the other thing he did, he used a lot of cocaine back in those days. Yeah, no kidding. And one night in 1980, he was freebasing cocaine and decided to pour rum all over himself and light himself on fire. So he had all these like massive burns on his face and his neck, but he survived. So then in 1982, he released Richard Pryor Live on the Sunset Strip, which is my number two. So to this day, one of the most incredible stand-up comedy performances in history. And like the thing was, if you go back, like Richard Pryor was fearless on stage. He was like angry and he was loud and he was like he had all the power. But after he lit himself on fire and then he basically went on stage for this movie, he was something that he'd never been before and that was vulnerable. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the thing is, as a stand-up comic, especially, you know, as Richard Pryor back then, you cannot have the audience sensing that you're weak or you're vulnerable. You know, they can just sense it. You know what I mean? And, and the first maybe half hour of this movie you're watching, and you can tell 
he's restrained, you know, and he's kind of building it up and then he just starts going. And the last half of this movie is some of the most incredible stand-up I've ever seen. His ability to sort of lay out the black experience was unlike anyone else. Like he would just cut to the bone. And like I say, the last half of this movie, he opens up and he starts talking about his drug addiction, how he almost died. And it's almost like this movie is like him coming back from the dead, you know, and resurrecting his career. It is one of the most gritty and truthful stand-up comedy I've ever seen done. So Richard Pryor, live on the Sunset Strip. That's my number two. What do you got? Yeah, when I I worked at Blockbuster in the late 90s, we had a very... Very blockbuster carried a very small stand-up comedian section because mm-hmm. you got to think back then it wasn't like now where everyone's comedy is just available on a streaming service. They had to physically have a movie, mm-hmm. which not a lot of comedians did. But Richard Pryor, obviously big name, and uh, there was a lot of money to be made, and that was a theatrical release. It was available on home video, and it was rented out every single weekend. Like I worked at Blockbuster for almost three years i i could i cannot remember a time when it wasn't constantly off the shelf like it was so good and people were so happy to come and just find it for the first time or rent it again yeah no it's it's every bit as good as you're saying yeah. all right your okay. number one my number one so uh my number one pick is uh so my number one favorite comedian working right now is tom segura and my um my pick is his 2018 special netflix special called disgraceful and he's got, I think, five or six specials out there now. And this one absolutely is the pinnacle. He he peaked and his last couple have been good, but they have not been as good as this one. This this special is fantastic. So um, Tom Segura is um, he's an American uh, American stand up comedy uh, com- comedian. Uh, he's married to another comedian, Christina Pazitsky. Pazitsky, I think is how you pronounce it. And he's um, he's best friends and has a podcast with uh, another comedian, Burt Kreischer, who people may recognize even if they don't know his name. He's a stand-up comic. He's a little bit overweight and he always takes his shirt off. That's part of his shtick. Like five minutes into his routine, he takes his shirt off. That's Burt Kreischer. Um, anyway, and they have, a, they have a podcast, Two Bears, One Cave, which is hit or miss. Depends on how much you like Burt. Anyway, back to Tom Segura. He's fantastic. And again, much like uh, when I was talking about Anthony Jeselnik, Tom Segura is filthy. He's like, you know how, uh, well, maybe not everybody, but when I was growing up, I had some friends that were like, when you're a little kid, you just want to outgross your friends. You you want to tell a gross story or tell a dirty joke, and it always has to be over the top and, and dirtier than the guy standing next to you. And like Tom Segura is just like that as a grown up. He's he his jokes are filthy. They they often come right from his real life, and he just finds the humor in it. This particular special. He has this whole bit about how when he was in college, uh, and this would have been like probably in the early 90s, so we're talking pre-internet, where um, because he was a little overweight, a little balding, and had a beard, he looked a lot older than he than he was. And so he would go and buy pornography for the people in his dorm. And eventually it got to the point where he would have a shopping list of everybody's preference of what they wanted and they would give him money and a shopping list and he would go and buy pornography. And he basically, when he went to the local like, you know, dirty magazine store, the guy's like, you know what? I'm going to recommend you to a more specialized place. And he has this whole bit where he goes to this warehouse. It's like this porno warehouse and it's some of the filthiest and 
funniest material I've ever heard. The very first time I heard this this particular special, I had, uh, although it's available on Netflix, I was just listening to it because I was actually shoveling snow in my driveway in the middle of winter listening to this thing while I'm shoveling. I hurt my stomach laughing so much I couldn't finish shoveling the driveway. It was so funny. I had to come inside and I'm like all hunched over and grabbing my stomach. My wife's like, what happened? Did you fall on the shovel? I'm like, no, this comedian is so hilarious. I, I couldn't finish shoveling the driveway. My stomach hurt so much from laughing. And I've probably watched this stand-up special a dozen times and I find it just as funny every time I see it. Uh, a couple of my friends have have they enjoy this as well. And when we get together, we watch it, even though we've all seen it multiple times and we still laugh together. I, I had a chance to see Tom Segura live uh, a few months ago. He was doing a tour and he was great. Uh, again, I find some of his newer stuff, maybe not as funny as some of his older stuff, but his, his special from 2018 disgraceful is one of the filthiest, funniest things I've ever heard in my life. Uh, I don't know if it's going to stand the test of time, like Richard Pryor on the sunset strip, but Oh my God. Anyone I know who comes to me and says, ah, can you recommend a good stand-up? This is absolutely, without a doubt, always my number one pick. Tom Segura, disgraceful. Segura. Okay, I have to remember this because I, I don't know who this person is. Okay, my number one. I'm sorry to fudge here. But I have to go with a tie at number one. So okay. I just, I can't decide between delirious or raw. Okay, that's fair. So, so I'm going with both. Yep. I wanted to get Eddie Murphy into the top of my list, and I, and I was going to go with Raw as my number one because I grew up watching that one over and over and over. But I couldn't have this list without Delirious on it. Yeah. So I'm like, okay, so do I put Delirious down at number three and Raw at number one? No, that's too many Eddie Murphys. I'm just two of them. Like, so I got to space it out. I got to get the other guys in there. So I just decided to combine them into the top. You know, I did that with George Carlin. So what the hell? At number three. Yep. So these two stand-up specials are really different because in Delirious, you've got Eddie Murphy when he was just coming up, you know, and it was a sensation. Like it wasn't a theatrical release. It was an HBO special, totally uncensored. And I think it was unexpected. The success was yeah. unexpected from most. Yeah, because he just, he came out of nowhere and he says the F word in it 230 times. But it put him on the map, right? And audiences already got to know this guy a little bit because he was on Saturday Night Live. But this delirious catapulted him into space. Like he was swearing, he was talking about sex, he was doing impressions of celebrities saying and doing things that he never would have got away with on SNL. So it, it put him in a whole new light for audiences. And it really kicked off his career as sort of that R-rated comedy king of the 80s. But Raw was different because when it came out in 87, it was released theatrically. And it didn't take it very long before it became the most successful stand-up comedy film of all time because it beat out Richard Pryor, Live in the Sunset Strip. But it was different from Delirious because, like I say, Delirious, he was just coming up. But when Raw came out, he was at the height of his fame. He was this massive worldwide superstar in 87. So the film opens up with this pre-taped sketch about Eddie as a little boy telling a dirty joke to his family. And the kid that plays the little Eddie Murphy is none other than the kid that played Kenny on The Cosby Show, Rudy's right. friend. Yep. And then the, the stand-up routine starts. Eddie Murphy comes out on stage and he starts talking about how other black celebrities reacted to Delirious. 
And mostly he imitates Bill Cosby. You know how Bill Cosby called him up and he's like telling him not to swear. And, yeah, you're too dirty. And then he's impersonating Bill Cosby saying the F word too. Which, and then he does this impression of Richard Pryor and Mr. T and Michael Jackson. And he's like, Jermaine, stop teasing. And he's, he's like talking about sex and STDs and what it was like to grow up poor and not be able to afford the McDonald's burger. Let's get the welfare burger. Um and then he remember he's talking about getting in a fight with Denny Terrio from Dance Fever. Oh yeah, he's telling the story how he had to call his dad from jail, and his dad was drunk, and he's he's trying to tell his dad he's like I got I got into a fight I got a fat lip I look I look like Jimmy Walker with my lips and his dad's all confused like you got in a fight Eddie you punched Jimmy Walker in the lips I like good times <laughs> you know no, this, it was just so funny but. Eddie Murphy Raw, it's a little bit of an ego trip, I think. You could really tell that Eddie Murphy was like the biggest star in the world. When he but he's just so good. Like you realize how friggin' talented he was. Man, Eddie Murphy was something else. Like he was he was a star. He was just amazing. And just the raw energy and power and everything that he had on stage, he was that good. So that's my number one. So raw with like a side of delirious for good measure. Yeah, I was going to say, I went back and watched delirious Mm -hmm. probably about a year ago and talk about of its time. It it does not hold the a lot of the content. It does not hold up because it is just so inappropriate by today's standards. But remembering it in the moment, because like I would have been 10 years old when that came out. I remember hearing it. Uh, even though we probably weren't supposed to, I can remember right. watching it on video. And as a young, like as a 10, 11, 12 year old, so many of the jokes and so much of the humor went right over my head right? because it talked about things like sex and, and, and things that I just didn't have the, the, the experiential framework to understand. So I can remember memorizing the jokes and telling my friends the jokes and not really understanding what I was saying or understanding why it was funny, but knowing, Oh, I'm supposed to laugh at this point. And then years later, going back to watching what, Oh, okay. Now I actually get the joke. And then going back more recently, watching it and being like, Ooh, this is kind of tough to watch yeah. by today's standard. But, but again, it's, it's like any other form of art, right? It, it, it evolves and changes with time. And, uh, as long as the performer isn't still doing that act now, you know, you, you, you um, I, I want to say you can forgive them for right. doing it at the time. I mean, you probably shouldn't, but it was it was deemed edgy mm-hmm. and and racy at the time, and that's part of the reason they did it. Was I'm going to do something to stand out from the crowd? And uh, but no, yeah, like you can't. There, no one's going to fault you for putting Eddie Murphy number one on a stand up yeah. comedian list. In fact, we probably get a lot of crap if he wasn't number one on one of our lists. So I thought it was interesting too with me doing all the older stuff and you doing all this newer stuff. One person that got lost in all this was Chris Rock. Yeah, honestly, I was sort of considering Chris Rock, but then when I ended up doing Chappelle, I thought, well, they sort of occupied the same space a little bit at the same time, and I felt that Chappelle just overshadowed Chris Rock. But uh, Chris not that Chris Rock, Rock isn't though, deserving. Like, like, like his his what was it? Bring the pain, and like he he walks, he like paces that stage like a tiger. Like, there's just something about him, this energy that he brings. He is just back and forth, and he is just bringing it. Like, oh. Yeah, he was his, one uh, hell of a talented guy and his delivery and stuff. God, he was good. It just, like I say, got lost a little bit between us, but I do think we need to give him a shout out because he was. Yeah, for sure. I love, um, I think it was, I think it was in that special. He has a joke where he talks about how, um, uh, you know, 
uh, white people and black people w- would never change spots with each other where he says there's a one le- white one-legged janitor backstage and i asked him if he would trade places with me and he's like no no i'm doing okay and he's like <laughs> and i'm rich and he's like exactly. just to emphasize how much more important it is in america to be white rather than to have money so exactly it's uh you know he's not wrong and mm-hmm. it's it's a sad statement it was true then it's true now his but, observations uh, were definitely good all right yeah. so on that note what do you say that we have some Fun with Caveman. All right, Derek, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to, we're talking about stand-up comics, obviously. I'm going to give you a quote from a stand-up act. All you have to do is name the comedian that said it. It sounds hard, but it's it's actually pretty easy, I think. Okay, Okay. we'll see. So I'm going to give you the quote. You mentioned the stand-up comic that said it, all right? Okay. Here's the first one. A house is just a place to keep your stuff while you go out. And get more stuff. That was George Carlin. So you got this, okay? Yeah. Gun control. We need bullet control. I think every bullet should cost $5,000. Because if a bullet cost $5,000, we wouldn't have any innocent bystanders. Yeah, and that's Chris Rock. According to most studies... People's number one fear is public speaking. Death is number two. That means to the average person, if you go to a funeral, you'd be better off in the casket than doing the eulogy. Who said that? Is it Jerry Seinfeld? Sure was. I've had so much plastic surgery when I die, they'll donate my body to Tupperware. Oh, that has to be Joan Rivers. You're doing really well. An escalator can never break. It can only become stairs. Yeah, that's... There um, should never be an escalator temporarily out of order sign. Only escalator temporarily stairs. Yeah. Oh, my God. I know this guy. Uh, Mitch Hedberg. Yeah. (laughs) I made out with a homeless guy by accident. I had no idea. He was really tan. He had no shoes. I was like, he's probably in a band. Jeez, I have no idea. Amy Schumer. Makes sense. Sounds like something she'd say. Yeah, okay. No matter how old you are, if a little kid hands you a toy phone, you answer it. Oh, geez. I've heard that bit before. Yeah. It's, uh... Uh, Ray Romano, maybe? It's your man, Dave Chappelle. Dave Chappelle said that. All right, here's a pretty easy one. I don't get no respect. My parents even hated me. My bath toys were a toaster and a radio. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) Great line. Yeah, that was Rodney Dangerfield. If at first you don't succeed, then skydiving definitely isn't for you. Oh, geez. Um, I, I want to say that's one of my guys probably, from, but um, no, I don't know. Stephen Wright said that. Okay. Yeah. All right. And here's, here's an easy one that around things out should be good. Fire is inspirational. They should use it in the Olympics because I did the 100-yard dash in 4.3. You know something? When you're on fire and running down the street, people will get out of your way. Jeez, that's funny. I don't know who said it, though. Oh, I told the whole story. It was Richard Pryor. Oh, 
Yeah, fire. sorry. Telling the story because he, he lit himself on fire, and he came back yeah. and then told that whole story. Okay, so uh, you did pretty good. See, you thought it was hard, but they were actually pretty easy. So well, I tell yeah. you what, next time out, what about if we did another movie review? Now, I I picked the last one. Do you want to pick one? You know, we got to keep in mind it's got to be a major milestone anniversary. So do you have something queued up you'd like us to go back and watch and then review? Well. So uh, I do, and uh, we've been visit revisiting the milestones for the older movies, but from time to time, we want to dip into something a little newer just to sure. try and, you know, educate mm -hmm. you. Okay. But as it so happens, the newer movie that I want to have you watch is actually celebrating its fifth anniversary. So a small milestone. Mm -hmm. and Really movie, new, though, for me. <laughs> really new. And yeah. I know you haven't seen it because I've asked you before and you mm -hmm. said you have not. Um, right. So uh, we're going to return to the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Oh. Remind me, you, we've seen, I had you watch Iron Man. Iron and Man. Had, and Guardians of the Galaxy. And Thor. And Guardians oh, and of the Galaxy. Four, right. Those are the only three. Uh, they're All the right. only three films I've seen from the uh, Marvel Cinematic Universe. Okay. Well, we're gonna That's have it. you watch the 2018 film Black Panther. Oh. And and let me okay. tell you, mm -hmm. you do not have to have any context of the Marvel Cinematic Universe coming into this movie. It completely stands alone. It is fantastic. If you have the the history of the Marvel Cinematic Universe coming into it great there's some stuff that's like oh yeah okay i know this i know that but the the way the movie was put together it's designed as an on-ramp for people who have not seen all the other movies it's a very strong standalone film you can watch it without any of the other stuff and it's very satisfying it's really good honestly if you would ask me what's my favorite movie that's ever come out in marvel cinematic universe black panther makes my top three no question I don't know if it would be my number one, but I could probably make an argument for it being my number two. And we're talking 40 movies deep here, so that's saying something. But, uh, what would it be your is, number one, out of curiosity? I think I think it's got to be the the first half of Infinity War. Mm -hmm. Like the final two Avengers movies, they split it into two parts. I think the first part of that is probably my number one. Oh, interesting. But I don't know. The first Iron Man's really good, too. But Black Panther, definitely in that top three. It's it's absolutely in the in the discussion. So and like you're saying, it's not connected to the other because a lot of the other ones, like they're all connected in and like stories overlap and all that stuff. But this one, they can just watch alone. And I don't this one. Absolutely. Just watch without and you don't have to know anything. They, right. they introduce all the important characters right at the beginning. You don't have to know like, oh, that guy was in that movie. And what's he all about? No, it's uh, I think you really find it easily to like it's an accessible movie for people who don't have that that background. Is this the but, guy that died too? R.I.P. Chadwick Boseman. Yeah, we'll yeah. talk more about that next oh, week. But uh, anyway, give it a watch. Available right. on Disney Plus as part of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And it was actually just recently on TV in the last couple of weeks. I had a chance to catch part of it. And it reminded me, I'm like, you know what? This movie's really good. I knew you hadn't seen it yet. So mm -hmm. it's time to watch a Black Panther. All right. So I will watch Black Panther. We will come back next time and we will review it. And until then, I'm Chris McBride. That's Derek Myers. And we're both saying thank you for listening to Pop Goes Your World, the pop culture podcast for the generations. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Pop Goes Your World. You can contact Chris and Derek at popgoesyourworld.com. Please take a minute and review the podcast on iTunes or wherever you download and listen to the show.